Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along as always. I am your co-host, Brent Hinson. And before we get too far along, I do want to say thank you to all the new subscribers we've gained and the followers we picked up on social media. We've seen uh, quite a bit of rapid growth over this past year as we've just passed the one-year anniversary of the podcast, and uh, all this wouldn't be possible without all the incredible guests we've had and the loyal listeners who download new episodes each and every week. So uh, thank you guys for that. also want to say thank you to the guy who navigates the conversations in these episodes he wears his heart on his sleeve, but he's also quick to call a dirt bag a dirt bag. He is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm doing good. But I have to say, Brent, as we're recording this, uh, I just got back from Alabama where I was able to spend a, a little bit of time with uh, Aaron and with Brandon. I wish you'd been there, man. I missed you. I sat that one out. I had uh, housework to do here to keep this podcast going. Well, as luck would have it, the housework waited for me when I got back. So I, <laughs> yeah, I get indeed. to do that now. So, hey, but I, I want to tell you, man, I, I'm excited about the conversation today. And, and the reason I'm excited about the conversation is I was able to talk to our guest. I always talk to the guest beforehand and uh pre-interview yeah and uh our conversation uh i wish as he said i wish we were recording this now because i thought it was very good <laughs> and i thought it was very insightful it's always nice uh again finding people that are dedicated so why don't you go ahead and introduce him and bring him on let's start the conversation yeah well our guest today started with the middletown township police department up in new jersey in the fall of 2000 during his time there he's commanded the agency's internal affairs unit and detective bureau serving in that last Ladder position until being promoted to deputy chief for the department in February of 2020. He's a graduate of the 281st session of the FBI National Academy. It is our pleasure to welcome Deputy Chief Paul Bailey to the podcast. Thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. I think you are our second New Jersey guy. Paul Hasselberger was the first one, so we're getting some East Coast love up there. Well, hopefully I don't disappoint. <laughs> thank you, uh, Brent and Mike. Thank, thank you very much for uh, for having me on the uh, podcast here. I'm really looking forward to it, and I I really uh, I enjoy the work that you guys have been putting out there and, and the messages that you've been delivering. It's a great job. Appreciate it. Hey, well, well, Paul, I just want to let you know that today is going to be a test of my linguistic capabilities because uh, uh, I, over the past couple of days, I've been with my friends in Alabama, which is a completely different language and dialect than what is spoken in New Jersey. So if I have to ask you to repeat something, uh, understand that it's making that transition there. All right. Okay, I'll keep the F-bombs to a minimum. <laughs> That's exactly the opposite of what our other New Jersey guest did. He he wanted us to earn our explicit rating, and, and so it was, a, it was a challenge. But I, I start off most of our podcasts like this because I find it so interesting. I would love to hear how it is that you came to be involved in this profession. Well, uh, you know, it was something that... Uh I think I think probably for my entire life it was something that I I uh, was gearing towards. As a kid, I, I was always fascinated by police work and whatnot. And then when I was in high school, I, I had kind of considered career in, in maybe communications or something along those lines. But I found that uh, as I was getting older through uh, volunteer work with uh, a local uh, first aid squad, the Linkroft First Aid Squad here in Middletown Township. 
I got to meet officers on a on a personal level, saw other aspects to their job, and at that point, I just realized like this is where my calling is. And and, and we'll talk about it coming up here uh, with a story that we have. Uh, but I don't know about you, but I was I was impacted growing up by what I saw on TV and the movies. I mean, uh, Emergency was one of my favorite shows as a kid, right? And, and then, then I go to college. <laughs> you know, I go to college, Joe, and I, a, I'm a criminal. Was just, it, give, him a, give him a series of D5W and oh, wingers and send me a script, right? And, and transport immediately. You know, I, I, even, I even have the Station 51 tones on my phone, so I can make oh, that a ringtone. Uh, awesome. <laughs> but, but then, oh, you know, man. I go to college and and i'm a cj major but then backdraft came out and i'm like son of a gun i want to be a fireman (laughs) and then i realized that that's not what the fire life is like it's uh much more sedentary shall we say but uh so so you start you started doing this volunteer work why would you do volunteer work with the the rescue folks what 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 drew you to that you know it it was just uh it, it was uh just a way to give back to the community and i've always been as i said like i mean you you talk about emergency i remember as as a kid like a toddler uh sitting on a coffee table turning my high chair around pretending that was my emergency vehicle (laughs) and my brother who is 15 years older than i am he would be the patient and, I'm, and and I would treat his broken leg by hitting him with a plastic hammer. You know, but that's how I did patient care. And uh, so my sister uh, has said that this is something that has always been in my blood. Uh, but you know, I, I realized that you know, uh, you know, law enforcement was really where I wanted to go, and it was something that always fascinated me. And you know, we talk about about shows and. And the shows that you watch on TV, they there's a disconnect as far as you know the reality of it, and um, there's a reason why you know uh, live PD or well, I guess it's on patrol live now. Uh, but there's a reason why they have 50 cameras in 17 different departments <laughs> to be able to kind of piece together you know two or three hours of footage. And even then, there you know Dan Abrams is telling us like, hey, let's go watch this video that we recorded earlier yesterday in you know uh whatever town that they're in because they're just at that particular moment there may not necessarily be something happening that's uh that's worthy of their footage but you and i talked uh, this morning uh not only though is it misrepresented in movies and tv shows and that but many times it's misrepresented in our recruiting films. Oh yeah. Because our recruiting films look more like the, the, the movies and the TV shows than they look like real life, don't they? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, like you would think as, as we were saying that, um, with this drive for recruitment and retention, which are two very, very palpable issues that we're dealing with in law enforcement, not just here, but around the world, you would think that Michael Bay is, uh, you know, filming these videos and, <laughs> and it, it makes it, it makes it look great. You know, the NYPD, the largest police department, I think in the world, uh, you know, James Earl Jones does their voiceover. Now it's Tom Selleck that does it, you know, 
Tom Selleck, no matter how of good a job that we do, he's not coming to Middletown to do a voiceover for our agency. <laughs> you know, so. But I mean, if you're going to have somebody do a voiceover, you want Magnum P.I. Yeah, right. right. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Come on. You know, absolutely. Hey, but Brent, I got to point out something here because I, I think just a minute ago, in a backhanded way, he made sure to call me old. Because when we started talking about emergency, when he started talking about emergency, he made he made it very clear that it was when he was a toddler. Okay, so I think I think he was trying to point that out. Just saying. Hey, listen, I'm right there with you. Okay, but Brent just showed his age too because he started talking. He recognized Tom Selleck as Magnum PI, not not ever who the new guy is. So Brent showed his age yeah. too. I have to acknowledge that I am getting older as well. <laughs> yeah, but the alternative is a lot worse. So so yeah. it's okay. You, you remember back though when Magnum PI was on, and then right after it was Simon and Simon, and Simon and <sighs> Simon had, had that had that great intro uh, to it right there that guitar starts going when they go splashing through the water but uh but anyway that that's a whole nother story i forgot all about simon and simon yeah. you just touched a nerve <laughs> yeah gerald mccraney while while we were talking though you actually learned something from a tv show a cop tv show and, and that yeah, yeah. tv show was nypd blue so why, why don't you kind of explain to us what it is that you learned about real policing from a tv show well you know nypd blue was was trend setting i mean uh it really it broke the mold of police shows and there was early on i think it was the third season uh the main character that you would remember is uh andy sipowitz and uh he was that that seasoned you know veteran detective that just would uh get a hold of a case and just work it to you know the last possible uh you know a scintilla of evidence in order to resolve it. So in the storyline, his son comes and says, you know, Hey dad, I, I think I want to be a cop. And, you know, Andy is telling his son, Andy Jr. says, yeah, you know what? It's a good job for us. You, you do a good job with it. I'll show you the ropes. And so they're, they're out and he's showing them how to walk a bead and how to, you know, deal with people on a corner and kind of, you know, giving them the, the life lessons that he had. And so he tells his son, he goes, uh, hey, you know, it's a good day. We got food. We're off our feet here. You know, good time to tune out the job. And, you know, his son is in awe of dad. And so he's like, yeah, dad, yeah, good time to tune out the job. And he goes, but you never tune out the job. You can never tune out this job. And then he looks at him, he says, there's four things that you need to know to be a good beat cop. People, places, the things they do, and the times that they do them. You know those four things, you're going to be a good street cop. And he relays a story uh, that where he's walking a beat and he sees uh, some activity in an alleyway, a car is pulling in and then pulling out, and he thinks he's got like, you know, organized crime or drug activity or something. So he goes and he sees this guy coming out of the building. And the guy's holding a machine gun. And his son, as he's telling this, you know, Andy Jr.'s eyes are like wide as saucers. And he's like, so I draw my gun and I'm screaming at this guy, drop the gun, drop the gun. And uh, he doesn't. And I'm about to pull the trigger. And he finally drops it. And it's hollow. It's plastic. It's a toy. And he says, I nearly killed that man. And I would have been justified. It would have been a good shoot. But I nearly killed that man because I didn't realize that the building that he was coming out of was a toy factory. And I was like, I'm watching. I was like, wow. 
that is a great story. Holy cow. <clears throat> but it's TV, you know. So it's now a couple years past that, and I'm working. Uh, I started my career with the Wildwood Police Department, which is uh, also down in, it's in New Jersey, South Jersey, um, a little bit below Atlantic City, 20 miles south or so. So as uh, I'm working there, I'm like fresh out of the academy, and me and my training partner, my training officer, this guy, uh, Smitty, we go to the Acme every night at 8.30, every night. And I'm young. I'm like, I'm like literally, you know, uh, I just want to go, go, go. Let's make car stops. Come on. Let's go to that fight on the boardwalk. Let's go, you know, try and get a drug arrest. I want to go, go, go. And he looks at me. He goes, no, this is, this is where our job is right here. And I'm looking at him like, what's the deal with the Acme? You know, why are we here? And he relates. He goes, when I was a new officer, a little bit more time on than you, I'm working midnight shift. I come on and I drive past this Acme. And all the lights are on. And I'm like, oh, wow, geez, they left the lights on. And I drive past the Acme over that midnight tour probably a dozen or more times. And as I'm finishing the tour, uh, we get a call for the Acme. The daytime manager and the crew for days has showed up, but the Acme is unlocked. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, well, oh, geez, they forgot to unlock the Acme. And and as he's telling me, I'm thinking the same thing. Like, oh, wow, yeah, they forgot to unlock it, too. And so me and my backup, we get there and we clear and everything looks fine. Nothing out of place. There's nothing wrong until we get to the meat locker. And when we get to the meat locker, we find the four employees from the night shift that were the victims of a shotgun point robbery. They had been bound at their ankles and their wrists and their mouths with duct tape. And they were told that if anybody makes a sound, we're going to come in here and we're going to kill every one of you. And he looks at me and now my eyes are wide like saucer plates. And he says, they spent a night in terror, not knowing whether they were going to live or die because I failed them. I knew something was wrong. Something was out of place and I didn't check it out. And as he was telling me that story, I realized, like, at that point, this is the same thing as what was on NYPD Blue, you know, being tuned into people, places, the things they do and the times that they do them. And if you know those four things, you'll be a good street cop. And uh, and it just it just resonated with me. And, it, and still to this day, it's something that I follow. Does that take a little bit of the humanity away from you because you're it seems like with that mentality of a, with a beat cop you're always on alert not that there's anything wrong with that but it's like you just want to live sometimes and not have to worry about what's here there and everything I, you know I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that brent um you know you you kind of your 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 way of thinking is changed in the academy for good reasons i mean officer safety is it is paramount and i mean that there's a reason why you know when once you get out of the academy you stop sitting at when you're out to dinner you stop sitting with your back to the door you know my wife knows that you know <laughs> she's gonna be like having her back to the door and i'm sitting there looking at at the sight lines and as people are coming in it's just the way that we're we're told uh and taught and for good reason but i think that as far as it forcing you to lose your men, uh, your humanity, I, I think that it's something that now, especially now, with such an emphasis on community policing and community engagement and the humanizing of police, that officers realize that, that as they're coming out and getting into the job now, that it is, it is a, a balancing act. 
between that that sheepdog warrior mentality and the you know officer friendly on the beat and engaging with with the public. Well, it's. Uh, I just want to point out for our listeners uh, that uh, I I identify with Andy Sipowitz uh, more 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 by looks than by ability. But but but, but I I want to. You do have a little bit of a Dennis Franz thing. I never, I've not seen it till right now. <laughs> I'm telling you, it, it, it's the beard I disguises it now. All right, uh, but but. Uh, I think it's interesting when we start talking about uh, taking away the humanity, and I think it's a shift in mindset. Corey Niehaus, as I think the author's name, he wrote this thing. He says, you know, we become cynical, not because we don't care, but because we do care and we got hurt. And I, I think that a lot of times in law enforcement, what changes is the fact that we do what you say we do, but, you know, not sitting with our back to the door not just to keep us safe, but to keep them safe. But when we become cynical, we, we, we do it because we think everybody's out to get us. And that that's what takes away, I think, like Brent was talking about, that humanity. And I think we need to be reminded, and I think you're a big proponent of this, that we're public servants. We are here to serve the public. When you look at agencies that, that have that for lack of a better term, uh, the mindset of that they are the occupying force in that community. The cards are stacked against them. It, it, you know, when you have that, it, it is it's damn near impossible to be able to gain uh, a real value uh, of the support of the community. And so, as we had mentioned before in our earlier conversation, Mike, you know, uh, Sir Robert Peel, all hundreds of years ago. The, the police are the public and the public are the police and all those Peelian principles they really they bring true to this day I mean the guy was like damn near Nostradamus for law enforcement <laughs> you know uh, and it, it really rings true today and if you if you don't have um, you know that connection to the community when times are good they are not going to be there when times are bad well it, it's and I love the principle right there uh, the public are the police and the police are the public. And, and I think that sometimes the public forgets that the police are also part of the public, our families, our friends. They, they right. live and work in the areas. But Your little league coaches, you yeah, know, the volunteer exactly. firemen, the guys that are riding the ambulance squads. Yeah, absolutely. But I think sometimes we forget that that thin blue line isn't us against everybody else. It's us and the good people against the bad people. It's about protection. And and, and that, that change in focus has been to our own detriment. And we have to take some responsibility for that, I think, as a profession. So then I guess from a leadership perspective, because you're in a leadership position, how then do we turn the tide? This whole concept of defund the police, because you and I, we talked about defunding the police. And I'm totally against that. I think we need to fund the police so that there's better training, so that there's better interactions, there's better responses. Uh, but we get upset when people, the public, they talk about defunding the police, but we have no issue with some of our brothers and sisters de-policing, which I, I don't think is professional. So from a leadership perspective, how can we start to bridge that gap between the public and the police so that all parts of the public, the police and the public, get what they need and deserve? Well, you know, I think it's, um, you know, when you talk about, 
that connection to the community and community policing in general. And it, and it was something that, you know, when I started nearly 30 years ago, uh, it was a term, but there was not, there was not a lot of support behind that. You know, it was something that you almost, you knew that you needed to do. You knew it was a best practice, but, uh, that was pretty far down the list of, of things to do, engage with the public and be a part of that public. Now, uh, you can see that it, it's a much different mindset, but it still has to be from, you know, it's got to come from the administration of an organization where the the chief uh, or the director, um, the, the leaders have set the tone and say, look, you know, if everything that we do is reliant upon the public, everything that we do is really in support of the public. So it, if you you know that you're doing these good works. You know that you're making the community a better place, that you're, you know, you're not changing the world. And, and that's part of the disillusion that a lot of young officers, uh, you know, get. They think they're going to be, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, this great crusade and we're going to save the world. And, and it doesn't happen. But you can change the world for, you know, a couple of people over the course of your career and make that positive impact. But you have to be you have to have that ability, that connection. So I think that as leaders, uh, whether, and whether that leader is the chief, you know, myself as a deputy chief, a sergeant who is really, I mean, besides the chief, a sergeant is far more pivotal than, than my position. You know, they're the ones that, you know, the guys and the guys and girls that are out on the road, uh, you know, they don't know where the deputy chief is at any given time. But they know where their sergeant is, and they and so that sergeant's position is influential, and so it's important for the leadership, you know, the uh, to to make sure that those sergeants and the the informal leaders within the squad have that connection to the community and know that hey, you've taken that you've taken that call, you've uh, handled that that job. Um, it's a couple of days now. Circle back to that, that victim, circle back to that person that was complaining, uh, or that you had helped out on the first aid call and just say, Hey, you know, how, how you doing? You know, it, it's that personal communication that, uh, and that connection that, uh, that victim or the person that was assisted by that officer, we deal, how many people do you think we deal with on a daily basis? You know, 20, 50, a hundred, maybe that person deals with one officer maybe two, maybe in their life. And when you have the ability to reinforce that connection, they are never, ever going to forget your name, ever. And as you go through your career, they're going to be applauding your success. You know? I, I retired as a sergeant, okay? And, and so my perspective is a little bit Good. different. Than, Man, I should have. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's interesting, though. Really, community policing is about engaging with the community. But, but from my perspective, what is lacking in, uh, many agencies is that the community that leadership should be engaging with the most is the internal community because those are the ones that have the most contact external. And unfortunately, what we, we have some administrators who engage more with external folks than they do internally 
you know, that the only time that, that, that the chief comes around or the captain comes around is when something's jacked up. We have a different term for that in Jersey, but, but we'll go with yours. Jacked up. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> 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 but, but it's, it, it's, it's one of those things. And, and then, the, then the public starts saying, Hey, well, you know, the only time the police come around is when something's jacked up that they're, they're not coming around and, and talking that they're, they're only coming when they're sent here. And I just think that we have to change the entire dynamic in order for there to be what the public needs and to quite honestly, what we need on our side. Well, you know, I think, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's a great point. And I think when you, when you look at going back to the start of our conversation and those four key things that Sipowitz was talking about, all right, people, places, the things they do, the times that they do them, you know, you know, those four things, you'll be a good street cop. You know, those four things, you'll be a good leader. And this is when I present at the NA, um, this is the basis of my hour and 15 minutes that, that I, uh, discuss leadership because, even though the, those are the, the same like guiding principles that you had as that young officer, as you go up, you can still have those same four principles, but those principles, uh, the, the things that occupy those four arenas are different. You know, so when you look at people, maybe you're not looking at the, the domestic violence victim or the, uh, uh, or the person that's dealing drugs. You know, maybe you're looking at, you know, uh, the stakeholders in your community, the religious leaders, you're looking at your officers. Are you meeting their needs? Yeah, this is this is uh, May when we're recording this is National uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, and there's this great emphasis on resiliency and officers' well-being. But if you're tuned out to what your officers are experiencing on the road and what their interests are, then you're not you're not going to be able to to have that connection to make sure that they're doing okay. Is to see those those changes, or for them to feel comfortable in talking to you about, like, hey, uh, you know, Lieutenant, hey, Cap, uh, you got a minute, you know, and that's really important. Yeah, so I'm reading a book right now called Willful Blindness. There's a part that that, uh, that I read yesterday that I actually took a picture of the page and sent it to my my buddy Joe Willis, and because I enjoy listening to his perspective on things, but I want to read this to you because this is what I think leaders need to be concerned with. They wrote, uh, propagandists and brainwashers know what managers and corporate leaders choose to forget. The human mind, overloaded and starved of sleep, becomes morally blind. And I'm not saying it's an excuse for what is going on when we see people in our profession doing things wrong. But we have a staffing issue in law enforcement, and you, you alluded to that earlier. It's not just in America. It's, uh, it's around the world. We're having getting, getting people to come into this profession, getting qualified people to come into this profession, getting people to stay in the profession once they get here. And the calls for service haven't decreased. In many cases, they have increased. Community expectations haven't decreased. They've increased. I think that, that we're a breeding ground right now. And there are studies to back it up that show that sleep disorders occur in, in law enforcement at twice the rate that they do in, in the general public. And but when we look at in terms of when we have somebody who is tired, that it affects their moral judgments because of the part of the brain that, that, that is when it's sleepy, it goes to sleep as the moral part. If somebody shows up to work drunk, you know, we're going to take action. 
But if somebody slows up to work sleepy, we tell them to suck it up and drive on. And in some cases, we order them to, to, to appear sleepy. So we've got this, this, this perfect storm almost of things going on in law enforcement. But, and you alluded to it, if our leaders don't know our people, they're not going to know there's an issue until the issue has already happened. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, you see, uh, one of the, like the, those kind of sentences that, you know, food for thought, if you will. And it's like, uh, just because, just because it's the way that we've always done things doesn't mean it's right. And you're seeing that, uh, today, uh, or actually yesterday where, uh, Commissioner Sewell with the NYPD just announced that they've, that they're changing, uh, as a pilot program, they're changing their work schedule and going to, to 10 or 12 hour shifts. Um, and they're experiencing, they're doing this in a, a few of the precincts in the Bronx, which is, you know, there's no shortage of calls for <laughs> service in the Bronx, but they've realized that there is, a, there is an intrinsic value to working the schedule or providing a work environment that is going to be conducive, not so much to the agency, certainly to the agency, that's a concern and, and something that you want to, uh, you want to take into account, but also, um, that is conducive to the officer because if you have it where your, your only focus is that, are we meeting calls for service? Hey, this call is holding, you know, can you clear that? You know, the, the ambulance isn't there yet, but they're almost there. Clear that call and go handle this. You know, if that's your only concern, you're, you're missing the, the bigger part of the picture because, you know, our officers come here, they do their shift, but they go home. They go home to their, their families, their loved ones, the activities that they like, those those times that they do them. These are the things they do and the times that they do them. Those are the things that they choose to do outside of it. And if you can be tuned into that, like, hey, I saw your Little League team won the championship. Great job. You're really making a, a big impact on that. And, oh, hey, you got your Girl Scout troop coming through. You want to do a tour of police headquarters for them? Yeah, that'd be great. You know, uh, you know, when you're tuned into those things, you show that you're not just looking at, you know, a, a shift schedule. And your focus isn't on just how much overtime are we paying? You, you're involved in them as a whole. But I'm a big, I don't want to say fan. I enjoy reading and studying about World War II. And I, I just find the whole thing fascinating, all right? But one of the most famous pictures from World War II is General Dwight D. Eisenhower talking to the paratroopers before they took off for uh, Operation Overlord. And that one always struck me from a leadership perspective because he did go there and he asked them questions about them personally. You know, hey, where are you from? You know, th that type thing. The, the thing that made the biggest impact on me is that he knows he is sending some of those guys to their death. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and selfishly, I could have protected myself psychologically by not going and shaking their hand. Oh God! By keeping yeah. that distance from them, but but he but he intentionally intentionally got close, and, and I think that maybe that's missing in some of our agencies there. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's the uh, I mean, we're talking about the humanizing of of law enforcement. That's the humanizing of the rank. Absolutely. You know, I mean, when you talk about the, the majority of the agencies. Uh, in, in our country are probably 30 officers or less. And maybe that 30 is, is a high mark. It could be even 
18 or less. But that doesn't mean that the, the chief is, is insulated against being separated from the rank. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that chief has a lot of different responsibilities. So regardless of whether it's an 18 officer agency or 180 or 1800, it, you have to make a conscious effort to have that connection to the officers because it, it lends legitimacy to your leadership style. And it, it shows that we value our employees and we want to have a connection with them and uh, we're interested in the work they do. We're interested in the things that are happening in their lives. And it shows them the value of being at their agency because, you know, there's people that are saying, hey, you know, they're chasing hiring bonuses, signing bonuses, longevity bonuses. They're looking at jobs in other fields entirely. So there's, there's something more that these uh, officers are looking for besides just the money and besides the career. And so we have to really make a, a strong effort to try and tune into that and humanize our, uh, our positions. Well, and I'm not trying to badmouth administrators because administrators have a lot on their plate. I mean, a lot of stuff that people uh, perhaps in the lower ranks don't recognize. Uh, but I, I, I would say that when our administrators become disconnected from the frontline troops, whether it be in dispatch and records, uh, uh, road patrol uh, detectives, the people become disconnected from the mission because uh, the administrators are the ones by and large, it should be driving the culture and the mission in an agency. And, and so I think, I think that we have to do a better job as a profession of if we're connected internally chances are we're going to be uh, connected externally with the public. It, it's just a mirror image of what it looks like internally. It's not like we love doing all these things that we do in a day. Oftentimes we're tasked with different stuff. This last three years, look at the stuff that law enforcement has had to deal with. You know, I mean, it's like we're living in a science fiction movie and yeah. uh, I mean, parallel universe it really is. And if we are part of them, or, or at the very least, we're tuned into who they are and, you know, we get to have some interaction. We're catching them doing things right and we're thanking them and, and those things. And we're just, we're just a little bit more tuned into what their, their day to day is. When it comes time that, we, that it's like, Hey, all right, we've got a difficult assignment up here. You know, we've got this protest that's coming into town or we've got, um, this, uh, this media circus that's happening because of the call that we're involved. And this is going to be a lot that's going to be put on us for this. It, the fact that if you have that good relationship, the the message and the mission become more palatable, I think, to the officer. Because it's not this like, oh, what does the ivory tower want us to do now? They can't even get out of their offices. When was the last time that I saw? But if they know that like, hey, we've got this thing. And, and, and lo and behold, if they see you at that protest and you're there amongst the line or you're you're sitting there like like your world war ii efforts i love it uh you know eisenhower coming and addressing the troops before the great crusade all right it strengthens and kind of builds that internal resiliency of the officer to say hey you know what this is going to be tough but this is a day that you know i mean the boss is here you know and she is she's tuned into what's going on and so if uh yeah, I know I'm not going to be, you know, left hanging in the wind here. 
I don't need it sugar-coated. Right. Uh, all of us know that we, when we signed up that we're going to have to do things that perhaps are dangerous, that are uncomfortable, things that we don't want to do. Yeah. Uh, I, I just want a recognition that we're doing it. And I also want to know what the connection is to the mission. How, how does this relate to what we're trying to accomplish as a, as an agency and as a profession? Right. But, uh, I, I want to bring up here because you, you talked about it just a second ago, uh, that you get to t- speak at the NA, the, the National Academy, uh, that is hosted by, uh, the, the FBI. What is it like being a leader who gets to go in and train leaders of leaders? How's that experience for you? You know, it's, um, it's something like as we were talking earlier, Mike, and you and you put it in that. I don't, I don't. I'm humbled by the experience. I I really am because uh, as a member of the session, I, I uh, session two eighty one, um, and for any any NA graduates that are out there, maybe listening, um, two eighty one was the greatest session. All right, just so that we're aware of it. All right, that's kind of the dig that we all throw at each other. Everybody else is just fighting for second best. But, um, you know, I was able to be afforded this opportunity to come back and train uh, or present to them. And it's it's something that I hope it's value to them, but I, I take it as, as something that's very humbling because you're talking to the top 1% of law enforcement worldwide. And so you can't go in there with this attitude like, oh man, I've just, I've just, I'm clairvoyant. And, uh, you know, they're going to be 200 years from now, they're going to talk about Sir Robert Peel and Paul Bailey, like synonymous. Like you can't, you know, I'm very realistic with, you know, where my apex is at. But, um, you know, when you, when you talk to, uh, leadership, it's something that it has to be delivered in, in a manner that you're you're finding common ground, and maybe you're able to present the things like best practices that, or, or just the the shared experiences that you've had. What has not worked uh, for for your agency, or better yet, you know, I have found, and, and Mike, you probably have found it in your career too. The best trainings that you went to was when somebody was there and they talked about how they failed. You know, hey, uh, I had this case and boy, it went sideways or, um, you know, we had this uh, this type of investigation and here are the here are the ways that this thing can go wrong. So you got to be on the lookout for that. So I, I think that the thing that is really um, I don't know if heartwarming is the right word, but just, you know, that kind of is reinvigorating is that you have this place where all of this leadership is brought and everyone is open to new ideas and innovation and looking at things from other people's perspectives because uh, you know there really is a bunch of different ways that you can get to your the end point and and accomplish your mission and sometimes it's not the way that you thought it was and you have to you have to rely on your network and you have to rely on these these uh you're familiar with the concept but maybe you just didn't think of it in that in that particular way, and it's shown you the path to to get there. You talked about uh, presenting and, and and telling people and showing them uh, the ways that you failed and you learned from those failures. Do you think that's helpful for the general public to hear as well? Because I know I hear I'm just a average Joe, not law enforcement, and I hear stories on this podcast where law enforcement officials will will say that, and it's almost like it. 
it lets down a guard where I can see the person and not the law enforcement officer and I can relate to them more. I'm like, well, they're, they're just like me. They have, they have high points and they have low points. Do you think that's helpful for the public to hear? Or do you think that you need to still have that barrier up to where you don't want them to see the places where you had missteps? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I, I think it's, there's, there's definite value in acknowledging your missteps and your failures and the struggles that you had uh, because it does it does humanize you and it shows that you are um, you're you're introspective enough to to realize that there's things that I could have done better you know the uh, and whether it's it's a public apology or, or or you're just or you know for a call that was handled bad or acknowledging your the mistakes that you've had in your career I think there's a lot of value to it but I think that it's important that uh, you know it's something that like it can't be necessarily your go-to move because then I think if that's something that gets uh, if it's overused then it's something that where it's like, man, how the hell did this guy become a sheep? <laughs> you know, God. there's a loss of respect in some yeah, aspects. You know, so I think it, it's something that you look for. It, it's more like everybody has uh, has missteps. You know, everybody does. You can't, if we're talking professionally, you can't go through a, a 20, 30 year career without tripping somewhere along the Stepping way. Stepping on it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Again, in New Jersey, we'd have a different term for that. Okay, but um, but yeah, and so you know, you can't you can't be there like, oh, I've done everything right in my career, and this because it just doesn't ring true, and nobody is going to buy that, and you've immediately lost any kind of um, buy-in from the audience that you're talking to. But it, it's something that you know. You want to also convey that you are focused on the mission and that you are the leader that is going to help, you know, weather the storm and get through the situation and, and inspire confidence. But yeah, I, I think that you have to, there are, there are definitely times where you can sort of, you know, peel back the armor, if you will, um, Ed Palace, I don't know if you know Ed Palace, but he's a captain in Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, and I've known Ed, Ed from the early 90s when we were both uh, summer cops in Ocean City, Maryland together. And uh, he's been all over the place in his book, Leader Armor, is, uh, is you know, you got you to gotta be able to, you know, show that you're human and that it's not just the, the suit. You know? well, the Marine Corps, uh, that there are points during a day typically once a day during a basic training cycle where the drill instructor will come into the, the platoon bay and takes off their round brown. And, and it's that symbolic time that, Hey, this is the time that we get to talk where, 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 you know, right. where, where, you know, you can ask me questions without fear of retribution. I mean, you can, within bounds, of course, but, right. but yeah. I, I think that we as a profession, oftentimes won't have that discussion that Brent's talking about. And I, I think sometimes it is, I don't want to say therapeutic, but it kind of is say, Hey, listen, 
we could have done this better. Here's what we did, but I want to explain to you why we did it. And it's based upon the information that we had at the time. And if I see my boss being vulnerable like that, then I'm more likely to be vulnerable with my people. And that's where I believe that a lot of those connections are made. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and listen, our, this profession is, uh, there are, I can't think of too many other professions that are, that face the level of public scrutiny that law enforcement has. So when you have somebody that is, um, you know, maybe not done things perfectly or is facing a lot of criticism that if a, the criticism is, is not warranted, they're able to weather it. They don't really address it. They just keep pushing on true to their message. And when you look at that, uh, horrific, homicide case that was out in uh, Idaho Idaho yeah with the college students yep. all right i mean that chief my god he was getting blasted by everybody the families the media um sometimes even other law enforcement and he stayed true to it because he knew what was happening behind the scenes and he, he just he was like yeah okay all right don't worry about it yeah yeah all right good opinion that's that's an interesting point and they kept moving forward um so he was able to weather that and he stayed true to himself and when you have other situations where it's uh you know the 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 criticism is warranted they own it and they say yeah you know what that happened Okay. The leader as a heat shield. Yeah. yeah. Because it, it wasn't just a, of the chief. It was of the entire organization. Oh, but the chief kept yeah. j- just kept putting himself out there saying, yep. bring it to me. And it kept the pressure off the people in the background so they could actually go. So they could actually do their job. And it was that, that department, uh, which very easily could have been very quickly overwhelmed. And I don't have enough knowledge of the inner workings of the case to really you know, speak intelligently about it. But when you have a, 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 an agency that is really the focus of worldwide media attention, it was such a horrific case. Um, and, you know, that, that department as a whole was locked in and really had a unified mission in solving those crimes because you didn't see the person that's outside uh, or that's like, you know, the disgruntled employee or the person that, you know, sees this opportunity to talk to the media and get on like this really cool podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder no. what one of those are like. <laughs> <laughs> outside the lines, not between the lines, outside the lines. Yeah. It's kind of like being a parent in some respects where, uh, sometimes you'll explain to your child, here's why I did this. Okay. I didn't do it to be mean. I did it because X, Y, and Z. And then sometimes there's information you keep from them because you're trying to protect them in that moment. Right. And that's what that line, I think that, uh, that you have to balance. But don't you think though, Brent, that, that the reason why you're, you're doing it matters a lot. I'm not doing this to be judgmental. Uh, I'm not doing this to be uh, higher than you. I'm doing this because I care about you. And this is what's best for you. And that, that goes back to the mission. Yes. But, uh, just speak, speaking personally, how often do I, have I heard in a press conference, uh, that conveyed in that way? I, I, I don't, it's mostly just the facts kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas the way you put it, it was a different way of 
hearing it. Right. But could you imagine the blowback that the, sure. that the that the head of that organization, you know, she's standing up on that podium or he's standing there and he says, listen, I know what's best for you. I know what's best for this investment. Like, oh, man, you know, chief declares that, you know, (laughs) he knows what's best for us. Like, oh, my God, man. I mean, Chief declares everybody else is an idiot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, and so it's uh, but but in a way, you know, Mike, you're absolutely right. That's it's like, hey, listen, we get exposed to horrors every day. All right. This is something you don't need to see. You don't. You just don't just know just the fact that I'm telling you that it was really bad. That should suffice. And we're going to do everything we can to get through this. And as part of that, all right, in this horrible case and the officers that see, you know, young people that are that are, you know, brutally murdered, you know, I'm hopeful that that chief made sure that services were put in place uh, for those officers, because that is. That's a lot to carry, you know, for the balance of your career. Yeah, but you know, based upon the performance so far, you have to you have to imagine, you have to assume that that, that they're being taken care of, right? Absolutely. And, and oh yeah, absolutely. And, and but I, as we're wrapping things up, I just want to point something out because I, I think what you said was incredibly insightful. When you get to that level of chief, yeah, you probably, but you got to be talking you know, about Brent. Yeah, you don't hear that very often, do you? <laughs> yeah, often. Jeez, Louise. But, but okay. when we talk about it from the perspective of, of the chief, and the chief is taking the brunt of the public criticism, well, the chief is operating at a different scale than perhaps an officer is. But understand that it's just as impactful on, on an officer especially a new officer, when you've got a single member of the public that is in their face yelling at them and criticizing what they're doing, it doesn't excuse what an officer does. But we, as a profession, have to recognize that it's going to have impact on that officer. The terminology I heard uh, was accelerated expertise. You know, we need to accelerate the expertise of that officer in being able to be emotionally disciplined. Because it's it's not enough to be emotionally intelligent. We have to be emotionally disciplined. I think that we are getting better at that in our profession. But when an administrator exemplifies and models emotional discipline like that chief did, I think it does a ton of benefit for the, the individual in the agency, for the agency, and for the profession. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, you when you're in training and you're looking to get on this job – and you're very idealistic about things, you know that these kind of things are going to happen and that, you know, maybe you'll be involved in it. And in the weird DNA that makes up cops, uh, you know, you're like, oh, man, what a great day. God, I was, I was, we, we had an armed robbery today. That was great. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, you're seeing these exciting calls um, and you, you sort of ignore the, the emotional toll that it, that it can place on them. And so um, I think it's something that, you know, by being mindful of that and and being tuned into it, you can make sure that, that they can weather that. And that when you have the opportunity to convey to the public, as we were talking before, like that peek behind the curtain and, 
you see like, hey, this is stuff that, that we deal with, these horrors. It's a headline to you. This is stuff that we're going to go home and we're going to be thinking about. And and the chief has to be able to weather that. And, you know, it, I think that when you have that kind of guardian mentality of your officers and you're shielding them from the uh, – uh, from the harshness of society sometimes and the, and the, the tumultuousness of uh, certain issues that we get to deal with. I believe, and at least I feel personally, that it helps to build the resiliency within myself, knowing that, hey, uh, you know, I'm doing right by my officers, I'm doing right by the community, and I'm doing right as often as I can. And I really have that as sort of my, my driving goal. And you know, it, it's kind of fortifying my uh, my beliefs and the whole reason why I got on the job to begin with. Absolutely. Hey, well, well we're going to wrap things up here, but uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and make an assumption, which will probably come back and bite me. But uh, I would be willing to bet that, that your agency uh, probably is looking to hire some people at some point. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you looking for an application? We don't have a signing bonus, Mike, but you'd have to shave the beard. I'm sorry. We're like the New York Yankees uh, no, here, okay? Yeah, no beard. Deal breaker, deal breaker. <laughs> but uh, what, what I want to do, though, is I want to make sure that we put in our show notes uh, information about your agency and links to, to where people can go to get information about uh, coming to work for your agency. But I want to say personally how much I appreciate the job that you do. Uh, the example that you're setting, oh, uh, the you. work that you're doing, uh, it's thank been you. a pleasure for me to talk to you. So I d- thank you for coming on and talking with us today. As a Mike Brent, I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, it, I am I am a small part of the operation. And if I didn't work for a chief that was progressive uh, and, you know, uh, and inspiring uh, as far or inspired as far as, you know, how he is running the agency. Chief Craig Weber of, uh, of our agency um, really is, has brought this agency forward and, you know, has made sure that all these principles that we've talked about and then some uh, are really put in place so that uh, we, we do the job that we can do. We have the resources that are available for it and that we try and make this community as, uh, as pleasurable and, and enjoyable place as we can. And, and so far up to this point, uh, God willing, we've been very successful. So uh, Chief Weber and his command really gets all the credit. Well, on one that. of the things I love about this podcast is the wide variety of people we get from all over the country and hearing their different perspectives and understanding uh, where they're coming from, and that wouldn't be possible without you know your candid conversations and your honesty. And I appreciate that of uh, being open and uh, just being very genuine with us. And we appreciate you uh, joining us and, and talking about these kind of issues. Thank you very much. This was uh, this was a, a really enjoyable experience, and I, I hope that uh, everyone that's listening has uh, found something that they could uh, you know take and found something with some value in it for themselves. Hey, hey, Brent, I just want to point out how, how surprised he sounded when he said this was enjoyable. Uh, just, just throwing that up there. You know what? I, I always take that as, a, as a, a badge of honor when people say, you know what? I was really worried about coming on and doing this, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is this is good. Yeah, you know? like this is this is something we would normally be you know, like not now, but back in the old days, this would be like you know in the parking lot, yeah. you know, with a couple of beers, <laughs> right? 
in this, you know, and, uh, you know, and solving world's problems. That's so, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, but it's important, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, it's something that, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat and, uh, trying to keep rowing it forward. And, uh, you know, the, the episodes that I've listened to, and it hasn't been every one, but, uh, the episodes I've listened to, the conversations are great and the insight and ideas that are brought forward are, are really, I think have a lot of value for your listener. So it's, it's really good. I'm glad that I was able, considered to be a part of it. Well, we appreciate it. And like Mike alluded to, we have, uh, links to, uh, the Middletown Township Police Department in the show notes, along with information about Deputy Chief Bailey. And you can find all that along with all of our past episodes. And Deputy Chief, you can get caught up as well just by going to Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. Brand new episodes each and every Tuesday morning. Deputy Chief Bailey, thank you so much for joining us today. Brent and Mike, thank you very much for, uh, for the invite to come on here. It was a great time.